0: It's very clear to everyone that the rules of the game are not benefiting everyone equally and so instead of trying to play that game, why not just find a different game? And so I do think absolutely, Like, I don't think there's any contradiction or mutual exclusivity between being interested in the potential of these technologies and the use cases they're trying to explore and even identifying where you think they're on an interesting path and also being able to recognize that part of the explosion of them has been driven by this set of contextual factors.
1: Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders.
2: A new world order is becoming clearer by the day. And in our global macro series, I, along with my co-host, Jim Kassang want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world will look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of important issues, and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. Our guest today is someone that spends a lot of time in the crypto space. And in fact, he runs the best known daily podcast on the topic. But he's also a really deep thinker on a lot of other topics, looking for some of the major global and social power shifts that the world goes through from time to time. And that is what we're exploring today. So please enjoy our conversation with Nathaniel Whitmore, also known as NLW. Nathaniel, thank you so much for joining Gemini today for what I'm sure will be a wide-ranging conversation where we try to make sense of an increasingly uncertain and confusing environment as part of our Global Macro series. Now, since a lot of our listeners will know you as NLW, who each day provides the world with the latest stories and news from the world of crypto, I very much look forward to hearing how you are coping with the fast-changing flow of big events in that part of the financial system, but I'm also very excited to hear how you are assessing the bigger global macro forces that are in play at the moment. But since this is your first time on our little podcast, perhaps I could ask you to set the stage and provide a little bit of context for our conversation by just telling us a bit of your background and maybe share a few highlights that shape the path
0: to where you are today. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, it's great to be here. Super, super looking forward to this conversation. Uh, I, you know, I, I I say on the the breakdown every day, uh, which is my my daily podcast, that it's a show about big picture power shifts. And so, I think if you're into that, uh, and you're kind of interested in that set of things, paying attention to what's happening in sort of global macro in geopolitics is is pretty essential. Even if, uh, as is the case for the breakdown, you you kind of hone in on a specific piece of it, which in in our case is the breakdown in the crypto. Industry. Um, I've been interested in uh, in these sort of big picture power shifts forever. Uh, I w- was an undergrad at Northwestern. Spent my time there building a design center for students who wanted to go out and change the world and trying to help them do it better. That led me to Silicon Valley, working with a company called Change.org and, and down a path of kind of how technology could be impactful to global problems. And eventually, a, a, a long kind of ways later, uh, that's what actually got me into into Bitcoin and the crypto space, was thinking about it in the context of the Sudanese refugees I had worked with in Cairo when I was a student uh, and what it would have meant to have uh, a store of value that was sort of transportable uh harder to harder to censor and capture, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I've always kind of been the through line is, is pretty clear in terms of kind of interested in how the world changes and 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 you know what forces are shaping it. Uh for the last five years I've been exclusively kind of focused on the crypto space, both in terms of content creation, but then also in terms of uh of consulting. So I've worked with tons of different companies on kind of communications and strategy and things like that. Uh and you know today split my time between the the breakdown podcast uh uh, which which is a uh, uh, daily, as we talked about, and uh, and helping FTX, uh, the crypto exchange, with with marketing and strategy. So excited to be here and, and chat about anything you guys want to chat about. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, we are very very
2: excited to have you
0: here. Now it's hard
2: not to be emotionally invested in what's taking place right now, both in the crypto space, but also in all the narratives and expert forecasts as to where we are heading in terms of the global economy. And no doubt we are witnessing some of the big power shift that you're referring to in social change. And I know this um, is part of what you studied, of course, but perhaps you can share with us what are some of the examples that you see right now in terms of the shifts uh, that are playing out at the moment. And maybe we can then dig into some of those uh, a little later in more detail.
0: Sure, so, I mean, this is kind of the the type of question where you're really just asking, where where do you wanna start, right? Right. (laughs) Uh, There's there's a layered set of things that are going on right now that you could almost, it's almost a a Russian nesting dolls of these big power shifts, right? The most acute one that I think that we are all uh, in the immediate context of, that is affecting the day-to-day, is uh, a shift from a very accommodative, uh, kind of loose open monetary or easy monetary policy over the last you know, decade since the global financial crisis into something that feels like it could be a, a more fundamental shift, right? The removal of liquidity from the system, uh, you know, a, a kind of a resetting. Now, to what extent this is actually a secular shift, a reset versus a temporary stop on the way to having to go back to something that is still structurally accommodative based on, debt to GDP and all these sort of things that, that you'll see people talking about on on financial Twitter uh, is, I think, an open question. But there's no doubt that right now, in terms of what's happening kind of day to day in the markets, that is the big thing that is shaping everything else, right? That's the context that everything is is operating in. So what I'll do is just a sentence on the zoom in and the zoom out, and then you can take it, take it wherever we want from there. I think on the zoom in, the way that that is impacting the Bitcoin and crypto space is sort of two parts. It's... Uh, helping uh, unwind or force unwind the leverage that has built up over the last couple years, where uh, that that industry has kind of really taken the extremes uh, of of kind of all risk assets and put them into a new place. Uh, and I think in some ways, what we're discovering, or what we will be discovering over the course of the next however many months or years, is what this industry looks like in the context of of a shifted uh, you know monetary policy environment. And then I think if you zoom out a level. Uh, it, there's obviously much more going on than just Fed policy. There are sort of fundamental realignments and changes as relates to uh, the shape of the world and geopolitical relationships and trade policy and our expectations around conflict uh, and energy. And so, you know, there, there's sort of this, the, almost on any, on any level, you see kind of us a, a being in this very uncomfortable, in many ways, liminal period. Yeah, no, I completely agree, and 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 you raised so many uh, interesting
2: points um, that I think both uh, Jim and I uh, want to dig deep into. Um, before Jim, you you uh, you jump in something that I uh, picked up today from uh, Lynn Alden's latest uh, research paper, and 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 maybe this is something you've thought about as well, uh, Nathaniel. And and that is, you know, I think a lot of us think that that the uh, central banks are a little bit in a jam right now, and she describes it as being you know, chess mate kind of, uh, you know, that's where you are in uh, at the moment with many of these central banks. And then she introduces this idea of maybe the only way they can get out if you start playing some kind of team chess. <laughs> and what team chess is that you are now starting to rely on other things to happen for you, say the Fed, to be able to even get out of this jam, whether that be, you know, the Ukraine war coming to an end and maybe that takes the pressure off inflation Or something else. And I wonder if you kind of share that idea that actually a lot of these central banks are completely without any tools left in the toolbox, without something outside of their control happening
0: to help them out of this situation. I think there are a couple things here. And maybe the starting one is our sense of what their power actually is in the first place, and maybe that is misaligned. One of the challenges of always-on, hyper-persistent media in the financial context is that all of us who are producing content day in, day out always have to kind of find the next story. And I think that has exacerbated the sort of Fed-watching propensity that we have in markets Uh, And, and to be clear, this is not without the Fed's sort of uh, awareness of that fact and leaning into that fact, Mm. right? Uh, The Fed, I think, has a sense that its biggest, the biggest tool in its toolkit is in many ways, the forward guidance that it gives you know, however it wants to define that. Uh, And I think there's obviously the sort of official forward guidance that comes, you know, after the meetings. There's also the unofficial forward guidance of when they very kind of carefully calibrate how hawkish or dovish they are in in between comments that they know are going to get amplified through a million channels uh, and a million discussions. Um, But they they are in many ways uh, uh, in the business of self-fulfilling prophecy. The more that they can drive markets where they want them to go without actually having to make changes, the the better off they are. And so, to the extent that we recognize that a lot of their power is sort of in the in the realm of of marketing and PR. Uh, i i think it 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 would potentially give us a a slightly different take on looking at actual monetary policy and what it can do um uh, so i think i think that there's there's a dimension of this which is just the the you know sort of like, not even the emperor has no clothes because the emperor is kind of telling us that he has no clothes but we still expect him to 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 be all powerful if you look at chairman powell's comments over the last year Every single time he speaks, he tries to remind people of the limits of Fed power, but it's always reported as like the 18th bullet point. Right. And it just doesn't matter that uh, you know he's he keeps trying to say you know we can't control supply chains we can't print more oil blah 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 uh, and and I you know I I think that it's I think that it is relevant though mm. you know to so so going to to kind of Lynn's notion that something exogenous is going to have to happen for uh, inflation to unwind I, I think that it's Very likely true. The Fed's only lever in this case is demand destruction. And we have an inflation that is, yes, I think, caused in part by demand. Caused in part, I think, by demand that was uh, about fiscal policy, not monetary policy during, during kind of the COVID era. Uh, but is also largely driven by, you know, the exact sort of structural dislocations that they were using to claim transitory, right? Like the problem with the transitory argument wasn't that they were wrong, that this was driven by the unprecedented challenge of global supply chains shutting down and having to come back online meeting unprecedented demand after people who kind of en masse had been locked up for three months. The problem was that they used a word that suggested a time bounding to that, Mm. Right, they called it transitory rather than I don't know whatever. Find a better buzz term that doesn't put them on the hook for you know six months or seven months, and so they were kind of just hoping that it would unwind itself before they were caught with their pants down, and it didn't, you know? So the problem wasn't, I don't think, a, a total misdiagnosis of where the inflation was coming from. It was the politics of putting uh, that, that word transitory and its implications of time around it, and they just ran out of time to allow it to be transitory. But I think that still, even now, they are hoping that they were right about that in the first place, and that, and that supply chains kind of fixed themselves, you know? Yeah, no, I love how you phrase that and, uh, f- and frame it, actually, because it is
2: uh, not uh, kind of a, a black and white uh, issue, even though it's often made up to do uh, or to be that uh, when they talk about how the Fed used the word transitory and so on and so forth. Jim, jump in here. What are, what's on your mind? I'll dive in uh, <clears throat> right on that transitory point to start with. The Fed, in my
3: opinion, never thought inflation was transitory. That was them trying to use the tools, uh, the few tools that they have to try and talk down the long end of the curve. They wanted the market to believe uh, that it could be transitory, so long-term inflation expectations came down. They weren't wrong. Uh, They were just, their tool didn't work. And now the next tool is, uh, you know, whatever it takes type language, right? Um, And so I think people misinterpret that they were wrong. I don't think they were wrong. I think they were trying to do anything they could to keep down that long-term inflation expectation. I think we know why that long-term inflation expectations are critical. That's the death loop, right If long-term expectation, expectations of inflation go up, uh, everybody starts building inventory, people start bringing demand forward, which drives more inflation. A and B, if in, they can't keep real interest rates negative, if long-term interest rates are, are long-term inflation is high because ultimately then you can borrow it, negative interest rates, invest in real assets, leverage it up, uh, you know, 4, 5x, and that only pushes inflation more as well. So there's this massive death loop that happens if long-term inflation expectations go higher. And that's what they're, you know, desperately trying to solve for. I agree 100% that the Fed, with Lynn and you, I think is what you're saying, that the Fed, you know, the emperor has no clothes in a sense that there's not much they can do. Uh, this This general understanding that the Fed is all-powerful It is all powerful in when it comes to supply side economics. They can give money to corporations and wealthy individuals and fund investment in the business, you know, in the world, in the economy. They are the, you know, the only entity that can do that, uh, you know, at infinitum. But um, but when it comes to controlling demand, they have very few tools. Monetary policy does can only through secondary effects, essentially, control demand. And those have a massive lag and they, uh, they're akin to dropping a bomb on a forest to clear the underbrush. You know, you can, at the end of the day, take money from corporations. Um, and in theory, there's some type of trickle down, way less than there used to be when we were a much more labor-intensive economy. In theory, there's a wealth effect because, you know, the people own stocks. Uh, but few people at the bottom who actually buy goods own those stocks. So it's, their ability to control demand is, is incredibly low, and the problems that we mostly face are a function of demand. If you think about it, we have had a deflationary environment for almost 40 years, particularly the last 20 years, because of monetary policy. So this, this concept that in taking monetary policy away, we're somehow going to create deflation is, you know, it, it doesn't make much sense at the end of the day. They're actually removing supply from the market by reducing money available to corporations that create supply. So I couldn't agree more. The Fed is, has a mandate from government to control you know, uh, price stability, but they have almost no tools in this current, government, current economy to do so. Um, government ultimately, uh, fiscal policy controls those strings, and importantly, they are subject to the whims of populist people for, of the people. And uh, I think that's the core point here, uh, is populism. So anyway, that's my little diatribe. But uh, question: to you, you know? I think I'd love to dive into in terms of crypto. Is you know, we've created the Fed is the creator of crypto in my mind. Uh, they created a monetary policy that made it uh, unfair for the labor class, in particular millennials on down, to um, to save money, uh, to to earn money. Um, you know, there was 1.75% real GDP growth for 40 years. 1% of that 1.75 went to the, the top. We've had massive wealth inequality, massive generational wealth inequality. We've created a technological revolution. Millennials on down believe that technology can solve all of our problems because that's what they've grown up with. A technological revolution, which has been driven by monetary policy. And um, to- on top of that, millennials on down haven't had money. They haven't had a nest egg. They've had to catch up. So it's a matter of betting on, you know, uh, convex bets. So crypto, crypto embodies all of that. It's a, it's a religious zeitgeist, in my opinion, of um, this generation. I'd love to hear your thoughts on where you see. You know, you are our first millennial guest, right? I'm a, I'm on the border, but you know, we're the boomers, right? In, in crypto speak. So let's let's uh, you know let's have it out. Let's let's hear a little bit about kind of your thoughts on, on the future of crypto and, and the role and importance that you think um, it, it plays and, and whether or not you think, uh, you know, monetary policy's weakening and ultimately removing of this technological push uh, from sending money to government, uh, to, to companies, as well as the balancing of, you know, through populism of build, rebuilding middle-class will ultimately uh, remove some of the demand for what, what crypto is. I'd love to hear your thoughts.
0: Sure. So, I mean, so many pieces to dive in. I, I it's one of the things that you actually open up, though, that is really nice because there's not usually this type of space created is crypto is such a contentious space that normal discussions fall into this it's this or it's that. And I don't like this thing, so I hate the whole thing, or I don't like the people who are involved with it, so I hate the whole thing. Or on the reverse, you don't like us, so screw you, you know, like we're not, that's, that is honestly the state of the discourse. And I think that just to tease apart a bunch of pieces. So you were kind of talking about, uh, why this set of things has found such a ready and open audience, right? Which is a really important discussion. Uh, also, a discussion that is separable from what types of value propositions a non-sovereign currency might have in the world. So let's actually hold aside. Actually, so uh, let me start with my fun, my fundamental case and why why I think it's interesting. There are two kind of sets of problems that these technologies, broadly speaking, are exploring addressing. One is. Uh, just that the the relationship of of money and all of the properties thereof and state Uh, And this is a problem that exists much more in the context of uh, emerging markets, authoritarian governments, right, where, I mean, this goes back to kind of what I said, like, I I was working with Sudanese refugees in Cairo in 2004. And uh, obviously, Bitcoin didn't exist back then, there was nothing like it. Uh, The the choice to flee, you know, across uh, that many miles and and desert, uh, you know, because of the authoritarian regime you were under. Uh, and by the way, that wasn't the only place I spent time in, Uganda, Rwanda, uh, Israel, Palestine, you know, the Balkans. I was kind of very interested in, in doing conflict uh, reconstruction things. And so to me, it, it seems quite obvious that a, a, a kind of global store of wealth... That is um, not connected to a state has really interesting and powerful properties. Now, whether that will be hyper valuable to the American middle class or anything else, you know, like obviously, the, a lot of the folks who are super adherents in the U.S. are focused on kind of the inflation, you know, fighting use case. Whatever, I, I think that in general, digital worlds are going to compete with uh, with kind of governmental jurisdictions, and in times of great upheaval, having these sort of alternatives outside of the the state system uh, is going to be Something that uh, is very hard for me to see how that doesn't uh, persist and continue to be explored. So that's one whole kind of set of of things that I find interesting. Now, there's this whole other aspect of of cryptos, which is obviously a major point of contention between the Bitcoiners and and the Web three kids, you might call it, where what the crypto crowd is interested in exploring is a different architecture for the internet and a different set of incentives. And so this is sort of you know the I mean, I guess it's the Ethereum and smart contract kind of side of the house, although it gets blurry. But effectively, what a lot of the applications in this space are exploring is how you redesign networks that are so powerful, right? How do you solve the problems of big tech, which has this sort of bell curve that happens, or not not even really a bell curve, but a a curve that happens where at the beginning, its incentives are super aligned with its users because uh, everyone wants the same thing, which is more users, right? If you're in a social network, each new node on that network improves the network for everyone. But at some point, you can't really grow laterally uh, anymore. You can't grow in breadth. And so at that point, uh, the the sort of financial imperative of the owners of that network starts to take over and they start to need to extract more from each individual node in the network versus just expand those nodes out. And we've seen this over and over again across all these different platforms and in the process have created these super powerful things that, I mean, I, I honestly, they aren't even really like corporations in many ways in terms of their influence on society, which is why we have no idea how to deal with them. We have no idea what the right set of approaches to curtailing that power are and what we can even do, and so there's all these kind of big questions around big tech, and there's tons of builders in Web three who are you know interested in exploring that, and there's lots of different dimensions to it. Some of it want to go straight at that, like you know, uh, architecture of the big social network platforms kind of th- problem. Some are looking at it in a more uh, a smaller context of sort of the value of creators and art, and that's where kind of the NFT stuff comes in. Anyway, the point of all of this is that there are uh, a ton of things that people are trying to build to explore, I would say from the standpoint of having humility, like any technology, it is not a foregone conclusion that the new thing that you build just because it's new gets to beat the old thing. Right now, if we look at tokenized social networks, for example, not only have none of them even come close to beating one of the big tech kind of social networks, they haven't even attracted anything resembling kind of minimum viable interest for people, right? Uh, And that doesn't mean that their architecture is wrong, but they're coming into a world that has profound, profound network effects all around on these other platforms, right? So that's a big open question. Now, I would argue that when it comes to sort of the creator economy and some of the new stuff being explored with NFTs, Again, it's an it's a very open question, but at least you're seeing much more traction there in terms of the value to artists or creators for what they do versus sort of aligning themselves with a with a traditional kind of platform. Point of this is all to say that these all of these different use cases are at very different points of uh, of kind of understanding their viability and continuing to figure out what where where they're going to land. But then there's this other dimension which you which you got into, which is why there has been such radical uptake from all sorts of people around them that don't actually care about any of those use cases sort of intrinsically or on a personal level or whatever, for whom these are primarily speculative assets. And I think one piece of this is just the introduction of digital scarcity that Bitcoin created, either nominal digital scarcity, right? Creates the potential to financialize and monetize everything. And to some extent, like part of the ch- interesting, uh, you know, the way that the crypto industry has played out is what it looks like to try to build technology when everything is monetized from day one and highly liquid from day one. And that's a really weird new force that uh, that we're, we're clearly still still trying to grapple with. The second part though, which is not just sort of a, a byproduct of the technology, is the the sort of sociological context into which it comes, and I do think that you are right to assess that there is some combination of opportunism, of frustration, of cynicism that also contributes to people uh, of you know millennials and Gen Z saying to hell with the rules. Uh, we want to be able to kind of get get involved. We want to be able to find the next thing. We don't want to be cut off from opportunity. And the opportunities around us are are not cutting it. You know, the savings accounts aren't cutting it. My, you know, houses seem out of reach, blah, 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 right? The the, standard litany of of complaints that people have. But I think it exists or operates on an even more subtle level than that. I don't think it's just people who are mad, like in an, in an, an explicit external way that they can't afford a house that are interested in these things. It's more just, it's very clear to everyone that the rules of the game are not benefiting everyone equally and so instead of trying to play that game why not just find a different game and so I do think absolutely like I I, basically I'd put it this way to to try to sum up and, and shut up for a second I don't think there's any contradiction or mutual exclusivity between being interested in the potential of these technologies and the use cases they're trying to explore and even identifying where you think they're on an interesting path and also being able to recognize that part of the explosion of them has been driven by this set of contextual factors. Yeah, I think
3: this is, uh, you bring up an incredibly important point, and I think there's a thread we're probably going to pull on for a little bit throughout this, is there's really two separate parts of crypto, right? There's this populist, uh, which I call fairness, equality, like uh, peace, right? Uh, You know, wresting control from the powers that be, which is very idealistic and and really, in, in my mind, is crypto right? And then there's the technology piece, which is blockchain, I and mean, you know, web 3.0, or whatever else, right? And I think it's absolutely clear that the technology has incredible ramifications for the future that we are going to live in in a million different ways. Whether the crypto, the currency part is relevant or not, I think is a major, major question. You know, I think that that is a function of populism and speculation, a lot of things and those two things are you know not the same thing and, and and actually and i think this is an interesting point in a lot of ways people don't realize they are diametrically opposed the technology itself is powerful because it creates control it creates uh, the ability to understand and label everything right in an immutable way that control is in diametric opposition to the freedom that people believe that they are going to get through this technology. The story of money for you know 30,000, 20,000 years, since the beginning of money, is uh, it is not just a tool, it is a tool of power. It is a way to control things and purchase things and exert influence. And at any point in history for the last 30,000 years, those that are powerful will use the currency, And they will become the sponsors of it. And they will provide a good to the people below who are less powerful. But in return, they will maintain power. And so I'm afraid that crypto actually is going to have the reverse effect. And I think the logical conclusion is that it would. And that an incredibly uh, immutable uh, currency with ultimate control is ultimately will be commandeered in the form of digital currencies. We're already seeing it. Um, 90 countries in the world have already started processes towards developing uh, digital currencies. And once that's there, I don't understand how you know, crypto, as it's currently envisioned, as this populist uprising, can avoid. Uh, you know, the technological benefits will be distributed through that into currency, and, and, and we will see the technological benefits in other parts of, for blockchain. But, but that, that important point, I think, is something that's not talked about enough. That ultimately, that crypto and this populist belief that it is going to free people from the constructs of power in this world um, is an ideal that is uh, driven by this populism. And that ultimately, the technology, it may be incredibly valuable, likely is is going to change the world in a lot of ways. But that is not crypto.
0: Um, Anyway, I think that's an interesting point. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. I, so there's a lot, a lot of really good stuff in there, and important things. I, I think it's actually a little bit more nuanced than this, though. So first of all i think when we talk so cryptocurrency the fact that it's called cryptocurrency creates almost a problem in terms right from the get-go so if you look at the set of kind of the uh, internet disrupting web3 type applications and what the job of tokens in those ecosystems are they're really not money and they're not trying to aspire to be money they are uh, value indicators, and they have kind of this financial value, but their function is as a proxy for value inside the network, or as some sort of pseudo equity thing. Like this is the stuff that people like. By the way, this is why it's very confused on all of the sort of things that are not explicitly trying to be money because they're just weird, and no one knows exactly what to do with them or make of them. Right? Uh, like, but but to be clear, like what is Uh, you know, uh, an an NFT is not aspiring to be money, even though it has value. But even if you go to kind of, uh, you know, a smart contract platform, they use their token as sort of the basis of the ecosystem. They get fees for using their network in that, and hopefully it has value, but they are not aspiring to displace, you know, the world currency in some way as something like Bitcoin is. Bitcoin has a very different type of ambition, right? I think everything that you said and sort of applies from this sort of populist ideal, certainly to Bitcoin. And now for some folks, particularly in Ethereum, they have similar visions uh, for Ethereum as as the folks in the Bitcoin community do. But really outside of that, I don't necessarily think that I see the people who are invested in Solana, Avalanche, Polygon, etc. really feeling like that's what they're they're trying to do. And, and I only bring that up because it's I think it's a it's an important distinction uh, that 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 is worth keeping in mind. The second part, though, or another part of, of what you discussed, is the uh, CBDC versus sort of Bitcoin thing. Um, I do think that there is uh, a real question of what the 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 upsides versus the downsides of central bank digital currencies. I think it's very clear, and I think we have dramatic examples of this, and then the fact of how quickly China is racing to to create their own CBDC with the digital yuan. The objective is quite clearly not to uh, be this sort of um, you know utopian value generating thing for citizens by reducing transaction costs and simplifying things. Uh, And you can tell this because there was a two stage crackdown in China on the path as CBDCs ramped up. The first was what was actually scary in practice to them, which was the Alipay and WeChat Pay and these things, which were used sort of uh, you know all over the place. There was this dramatic moment uh, when ant financial was supposed to go public in the US would have been the biggest ipo i think or people expected it to be the biggest ipo in history and all of a sudden it was canceled and then jack ma was gone for like 3 months and he made you know one or two very small appearances and then they announced that ant financial was being restructured to be effectively under the regulatory regime of the banks in china right the, the you know the state owned banks and so that was absorbed right this thing that was a private version of money. Even though like those companies were they they never had the aspiration or the narrative or the messaging of anything like a Bitcoin, they were functionally competing with Chinese state-run banks and China totally absorbed them, right? That there there was a they got so far and then no more. Now, after that was cleaned up, that's when China in 2021 started coming for Bitcoin in a much more aggressive way. First the mining ban and then the trading ban and then basically a prohibition on even working on those issues. Uh and so again, this is like the, the the it's quite clear, regardless of what you think of of a Bitcoin, the targeting of that kind of utopian or populist ideal by a regime that is quite clearly known to not want those things gives you a good picture of of one side of CBDCs. The CBDC conversation in America is pretty fascinating, and even as regards sort of this this point about whether something like a Bitcoin uh, and uh, and a and a kind of a a. a, a digital fiat can coexist. Because what you've seen, so if you just look at CBDCs as central bank versions of of digital fiat, uh, China is by far the farthest uh, in terms of the development. However, if you include in your sort of discussion of digital fiat's U.S. denominated stable coins, USD is the king of that hill as well by a huge amount. The amount of usage of Tether and USDT and USDC uh, is so radically beyond uh, beyond what we're, you're seeing with the digital yuan. And the fascinating thing is if you watch how the policy discourse in the US has shifted, there are a fair number of folks uh, both right and left who are kind of looking back at the history of U.S. financial innovation, seeing that it's always an interesting dance between, you know, private market innovation that gets absorbed into the public system in some sort of, uh, you know, official ways uh, and saying, well, is there a way to, Absorb this superstructure of you know U.S. denominated stablecoins in a way that isn't just the Fed issuing uh, its own CBDC. So I think that the 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 range of potential outcomes with central bank digital currencies is is fairly wide. I agree that they have huge surveillance and privacy implications, even if you are just adopting a USDC as sort of the official U.S. digital currency. It still has those challenges when it comes to uh, you know how the rules are written and how the rules are followed you know, in terms of how cash-like and privacy-preserving the instrument is. For my take, though, I don't believe that the existence of a CBDC diminishes the use case for Bitcoin I mean, maybe for the average person who just wants functional flexibility, but they're already using US-denominated stablecoins for that sort of thing. I think that it reinforces this very sort of, it might be a niche role, but it's a really important niche role that a non-sovereign currency has. But th- there's a lot more to explore there, too. I
3: mean, at the end of the day, we, you get the technological benefits from a US, you know, from a, from a digital currency. Then you're left with this freedom Element, right, This fairness, this extra-governmental, uh, lawless kind of, uh, I guess, libertarian, for lack of a better term, um, thing. And uh, the question is, you know, will governments allow extra-governmental, lawless uh, thing to exist? And I think that's its true kind of value once the, the digital currency exists.
2: I want to try and throw in a couple of uh, more basic questions than this uh, discussion, um, but I do think that it's relevant. Um and that is, I hear both of you talk about that Bitcoin kind of was created because of the, you know, the one percent, you know, the one percent owning everything and the, the unfairness and inequality and all of that. So, and I, I don't know exactly where this uh, chart came from. Uh, I found it on 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 in a tweet uh, feed uh, today, um, but it's probably from one of the big Bitcoin exchanges, and it says that 4.11 percent of addresses own 96.53% of Bitcoin. So my question is very simple. How is that different from the 1% owning most of the traditional assets? If 4% can own 96% of Bitcoin, how does that make Bitcoin world more equal?
0: So two parts of that. First is the more uh, functional or kind of easy one. So I don't know the specific chart that you're looking at, Whenever those charts are shared, the wallets that are the dominant ones are exchange wallets that are basically the collections of their customers' assets. So it doesn't okay, actually fair. reflect the true distribution. Yeah. Uh, I think since we're in the we're in like let's have the um, complex and candid version of the conversation versus the sort of you know soundbite version of the conversation. I do believe is an appropriate discussion to have, and that Bitcoiner should have it too, around. Uh, you know genie coefficient and like the concentration of ownership in bitcoin and what it looks like there's tons of sides of that debate and for for some people it starts and ends on how it was allocated at the beginning and if people got there first that's sufficient and fine other people aren't so comfortable with that and they say if you've got if you're just replacing one class of billionaires with a new class of billionaires how does anything change i actually am hugely in support of that discussion happening i think it, it does nothing but make bitcoin better for having that conversation but but it's it unfortunately it's always reduced in some ways to the abundant you know exchanges that where a lot of the Bitcoin lives hold hold uh, all of the, the floating supply there's a second part though I think which is important um which is that it's not necessary so the 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 biggest reason that we have narratively ascribed Bitcoin with the ambition to kind of disrupt the power of traditional financial institutions is obviously that the line that's embedded in the Genesis code. You know, Chancellor on the brink of a second bailout for banks, um, and also you know the, the the sort of there's clearly a sound monetary philosophy that went into the the way that the monetary policy was designed. So it's not a stretch to to to, to read that critique. I do believe, though, that it's that we imbue a lot of that narrative upon it versus sort of it was like clearly there from the beginning. If you remember, Bitcoin was the the latest and only successful in a series of projects whose core goal was to solve the double spend problem and actually create a system of money on the internet or value exchange on the internet that didn't rely on a trusted third party. And tons and tons of projects had come before that from lots and lots of different political perspectives. so certainly there's a through line in a lot of those political perspectives, but there is, you know, going back to sort of early parts of the conversation, just a, a really important problem to solve for the sake of kind of internet value transfer that, that it was solving. It happened to come in a package of fixed monetary policy that was sort of unchangeable and uh, an inherent critique of uh, the, the sort of, uh, you know, human mandated or mediated mo- monetary policy. But I I, I worry often that we, uh, that we speak in terms of apps, Salutes with these things you know uh bitcoin is this bitcoin is what the community of bitcoiners decide that it is now the community of bitcoiners is fairly loud about certain of these principles so i don't think that's a, a wrong assessment but um you know it, it's not an immutable thing
2: no no absolutely and i, I do appreciate you, uh, appreciate that you um clarify that there's definitely a risk that uh, some of these uh, stats are are not you know really telling the full story so so i understand that and uh, and and I have a few more questions about that, which I'll come to later. But before that, just as a s- small follow up, just another thing that kind of puzzles me a little bit. Um, and and as you can tell, the three of us today, I'm the one who knows the least about crypto, that's for sure. Um, but we, we talk, we we hear often about these hodlers that that are never going to sell. And there's no doubt that it seems to me that they do control quite a large portion of, of the of the of Bitcoin at least. But then again, I'm also kind of puzzled with, okay, but if that's the case, who is it that are selling and that can cause Bitcoin dropping 75%? I mean, so my, I guess my question is, well, my suspicion is that on one hand, we hear hodlers never wanting to sell or saying that they're never going to sell and that's why it's going to continue to go up. But I wonder if that's really true or if they, and I have no idea if there's any ways to to see that in, 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 in the blockchain, but Whether that's really true or actually when Bitcoin goes high enough, they they definitely are, you know, lightening up on on their Bitcoin. I mean, I'm sure some of them are not. Um, Preston Pish, for example, has been out saying this week, I think, that that he's not sold any Bitcoins. But he is stacking cash at the moment, but he's not selling any Bitcoins. So, I don't know. I'm just curious. uh, So, maybe uh, you can
0: enlighten me a little bit, uh, Nathaniel. Sure. Well, uh, let me take this question in a, in a couple of ways. One is, yeah. uh, you know, specific to your answer around hodlers. I think that I believe that there is a base of folks who have uh, this incredibly high long term conviction on it, but they 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 more set the price floor. Uh, wherever it ends up being each cycle than have any real kind of deterministic impact on anything that happens outside of that, right? If you have this very, you know, strong base of high conviction that some represent some part of the supply that is just not going anywhere, you know, that is a force kind of on, on the bottom side. Now, the place to take this conversation is how the dynamics of Bitcoin ownership have been changing over the years and, and what that looks like. And, uh, and and this is an important question, even going back to your last question, right? Because you you kind of want, uh, I think, if you're a Bitcoiner, some combination of that high conviction long-term hodling, but you also want a mechanism to distribute Bitcoin out to new people who come into the space, right? That's how you solve questions of concentration. Uh, by the way, there's a really kind of fun little aside, because we just had Bitcoin pizza day not that long ago. So Bitcoin Pizza Day is obviously a celebration sort of of uh, uh, of Laszlo, who's an early Bitcoin miner, who spent $10,000 to buy two, uh, two, two Papa John's pizzas. And in point of fact, he actually did this a number of times. He had this offer up on Bitcoin Talk. No one took a bump on it for about four days. Finally, someone did. And then over the next month or two, he did this about 10 times. He spent about 100,000 Bitcoin into this. Now, interestingly, Laszlo was one of the first people to mine Bitcoin with a GPU. And Satoshi was sort of Pretty vocally against GPU mining at that time. He thought it was sort of uh, overpresaging. You know, it put put too much pressure on the network. It, it had too much concentration, and uh, and it's entirely speculative. But he Satoshi and Laszlo had a back and forth, uh, you know, in email. And one of the um, theories about why this th- sort of pizza thing happened was it was laszlo's way to redistribute some coins that he had been gpu mining back into the ecosystem because he had gotten too far out ahead anyways the point of just it's a fun little aside because i I think it's these questions are relevant in terms of what the long-term base of of of, you know bitcoin holders looks like of course over the last uh two years or so um, i guess almost exactly two years now the biggest shift in the, uh, the the base of Bitcoin holders has been the actual introduction of institutions. You know, there for years, we were waiting for the institutions. They were right around the corner. They were always, you know, just there coming. And backed launches in 2018, and it's going to be the thing to get us out of crypto winter. Guess what? It was not. But when, you know, once you saw Paul Tudor Jones publish his great monetary inflation thesis, and then a couple months later you had started to see other hedge funders get in, and then you had Sailors MicroStrategy buy and blah 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 blah, you know, you'd really had this sort of like a mass introduction of institutions into the space there were a lot of theories around what was going to happen when you had all these institutions in, up into including, oh, well, they have different types of investment mandates, so they're not gonna sell, so they create a super cycle. Like, that was a big popular thing for for a lot of the last cycle. In fact, what you see is a greater correlation to equities by virtue of the fact that they have investment mandates that are not Bitcoin exclusive in almost all cases, and that it's a part of what makes Bitcoin an interesting type of weird inflation hedge should that be a conviction that an institution has is that it's also hyper liquid right and can actually be sold fast and so a lot of what the dynamics of the last six months or so in this unwind have been is people actually discovering that uh, of course there's going to be more correlation because the holder the, the the base of holders has gotten much more correlated with regular equities holders You know, you touch on a
2: really important point that I I also wanted to bring up, and and that's exactly right. And um, from an outside point of view, but at least from someone who's been in the financials, you know, services for for almost four decades, I'm really wondering if, because we all want it, I mean, I come from the, you know, quant-based systematic trend-following space, which is also a space where we've Fought for decades to try and become, you know, institutionally approved and get all that wonderful money, et cetera, et cetera. But in the in the case of Bitcoin, I've actually been wondering that, you know, having that wish and 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 all the stories that you tell um, that were certainly publicized uh, a few years ago. I'm just starting to wonder whether that's the worst thing that could have happened for Bitcoin, actually. Because first of all, let me just tell you a little bit about Paul Tudor Jones. He came from the trend-following space, right? And so he's a trader in my mind. I have no idea what he's doing with his holding, but usually when you see people like that, hedge funds get into something. They buy it when they go up, when it goes up. But they're the first one to sell it when it starts to go down, because that's their mandate. They're here to make money. It's not a philosophical game for them they have clients who expect a return at the end of the day so they're not going they're not going to hold an investment that drops 50% if they can avoid it so and and you rightly said there are other types of institutional investors who have different mandates and and so on and so forth so the first conversation that Jim and I had in this um series of or this batch of the global macro series was actually with Dr. Ben Hunt I don't know if you're familiar with him but one of the things he talks about is this thing about Bitcoin becoming Bitcoin, right? I mean, this is this institutional acceptance. It's everywhere, and actually, he thinks from a from a narrative point of view, which is his specialty, it's just not. I mean, it's not necessarily beneficial because you, by by becoming mainstream, you kind of give up, or you, by implication, you have to give up some of the things that are. Um, where it all started, what what made it Bitcoin and and a couple of 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 um, uh, stories just to just to share with you, and I'm sure you're familiar with them. Uh, there was a guy recently that came out on on a Twitter feed with a video and you I don't know his name, but but um, you may know him. he's someone who buy who bought ether at zero point seven five dollars so less than a dollar. he bought it and he carried it all the way up to four thousand dollars. but now he sold everything at twenty five hundred dollars Why? Because he said, now it's just an, a leverage bet on 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 risk assets or on tech. it 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 moves exactly as you said. It moves exactly like uh, like that. and so i'm I'm just I'm wondering whether that's part of the conversation inside the 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 crypto space that maybe we've done ourselves a disservice and and even back to the kind of michael saylor and 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 microstrategy, uh, doing things to attract a lot of money, becoming more institutionally approved. But that obviously um, mean you're going to have a lot more regulation, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. which, by the way, I also want to talk to you about because you had a wonderful interview with some of the um, people introducing this regulation, which actually I thought, I thought was really constructive. But that's, we'll take that in a few minutes. But anyway, back to the point about, is the fact that the Bitcoins wanted that acceptance from institutions, do you think that actually is beneficial to
0: Bitcoin or not? so th- a bunch of different pieces of this uh one I will just say and this is as snarky as I'll let myself get um pretty fundamentally unimpressed with the founder of a uh of an ethereum based tokenized hedge fund deciding to keep all of the tokens in his unsuccessful hedge fund but sell ethereum and try to get Popularity, publicity for it, like, yeah, whatever. Like, it's this is a moment where lots of people are trying to make themselves feel smart and relevant again, and uh, and I, I pretty aggressively dismissed his take, even if the points I think are are, are relevant. Now, Ben, I want to put on the opposite end of the spectrum of saying something very similar to someone who's in the industry. Um, I. I really like Ben. Ben's been on the show twice. Uh, I think Ben is almost broken cynical at this point. I think that he has spent so much time watching power just reappropriate itself and absorb the next thing that it is nearly impossible for him to believe that things won't just get eaten. Uh, and it's and it's sad for me. I still think he's an awesome person. I love his writings. I continue to subscribe. And, and, you know, I'm in, in the Wolf Pack or whatever he calls it. Sure. But um, but I think that the the Bitcoin TM point is is worth uh, noting and reflecting on. Like what the implications really are because I do think it's the case that power structures are incredibly adept at absorbing into themselves the thing that would come to challenge them. This has always been the case. And so to the extent that that is happening with Bitcoin, it's it's a worthy thing to to watch out for. Now, I think that the Bitcoiner answer to that fear is maybe to... um, break apart questions of price and market dynamics from questions of its functionality as a store of value sort of outside of state control. Now, where Ben and that Bitcoiner would disagree is, he thinks that everything gets kind of regulated into oblivion and there's no world outside of kind of the the KYC Bank Secrecy Act kind of, you know, use of Bitcoin. Um, I actually had the last conversation that I had with with Ben on the show, it was him and Alex Gladstein. And um, obviously Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation comes from the camp of, he doesn't really care if people in the U.S. have to KYC to use Bitcoin, if, you know, again, that sort of Sudanese refugee use case that, that I imagine, But it was, I, I will not say that they found common ground. It was a lot of still talking past each other, but I think it does a pretty good job of kind of reflecting the two parts of that perspective. I will say that there are, Bitcoiners who are on the inside of this, who have been in Bitcoin and kind of invested in Bitcoin as their kind of primary focus for for quite some time, who have also been sounding this warning for a long time, I think Caitlin Long being the best, uh, you know, kind of known among them. She was always sounding the alarm that these products that create synthetic versions of Bitcoin in some way, undermine the the market cap of Bitcoin, right? If the if the whole kind of premise of where sound monetary policy comes from is 21 million flat, but then you can rehypothecate through you know uh, e- e- ETFs that are cash settled and all these sort of things, then there is something fundamental there. Uh, and a lot of Bitcoiners uh, agree with her take on that. I think I am personally. Uh, closest to the Gladstein side of these things, where I feel like the the there are really important conversations to be had about the uh, how these sort of forces change the market dynamics, and I think certainly taking uh, I worry very much about the. Um, Hero worship that Bitcoiners uh, tend to have towards anyone who adopts Bitcoin. I think Nayib Bukele from El Salvador is my most obvious example of this. Uh, but I think that there's again, with all things, it's it's so hard in this space to have a, a a calm conversation about it, which is why I've appreciated the time I've had with you guys. Couldn't agree more. I actually have one thing that I
3: would disagree with you guys on, though. You know, this idea that the adoption from institutions is somehow causing some Uh, greater downside to, uh, you know, uh, or a two-sided nature to crypto. Um, The reality is, is it has been a speculative investment from the beginning. And that word kind of gets people's hair up, right? Makes people, but a speculative investment by definition means something that you're speculating on something that's really not certain, right? That's very uncertain. And I think we've, through our conversations here, we've been very clear that, that crypto's future is not certain. There's a lot, a lot of uh, dreams and aspirations, and it may be something very valuable, but it very well may not be. There's no fundamental cash flow. There's no, there's no something fundamental now. Again, we can talk about the technology and its potential use cases as a, for business needs and to create profits. That's another kind of thing, but crypto itself is speculative by definition. And the second you have something that is speculative, you know, people can be hodlers, they can have conviction in the speculative thing. But much like uh, the speculation we've seen in uh, the t- some growth technology names that don't have profits now, that are speculative because they need time to create, to get market share and to potentially capitalize on that down the road. Um, much like the liquidation we've seen there, it's not surprised surprise that people who are Uh, have been speculating in calls and YOLOing in the tech space, have also generally been, if you draw a Venn diagram, very similar retail, who are, um, you know, have been hodling crypto. So I I think it's, uh, I don't think it's fair to say that, that, oh, the hodlers are being subjected by uh, kind of institutions. Now, to be clear, just like any other speculative, fragile asset, when liquidity comes off the table, you better believe institutions are gonna find weakness and they're gonna take advantage of it. That's free market economics, that's how capital markets work, right? Um, and crypto has a lot of weaknesses. It has a lot of structural weaknesses in terms of the participants who are holding and their potential uh, balance sheets. Also, things like Tether, and that's the next question I have for you. You know. I've talked to a lot of people on the inside uh, of, of crypto. I have there's a lot of talk about, you know, if there's a major weak point in kind of the whole thing unraveling, it's Tether, right? What are your thoughts on whether we'll see a breaking of the buck in, in Tether and whether or not ultimately uh, that would cause a major, major um, unwind of kind of the infrastructure that holds
0: a lot of the crypto space, space together? So uh, a bunch of different questions with Tether. Tether is the longest running skepticism both rational and irrational, that people who are outside of crypto have. And there is no doubt that things have at time been looser or not, right? And I think that you can still be sort of net-net, uh, not in the camp of um, kind of a, a tether truther. And still I mean, they settled with the NYAG for a moment in time when they were not they didn't have their full reserves backed, right? And, you know, there's it's clearer and more nuanced why that is, but at the end of the day, they said one thing, they didn't do that thing, they settled the New York Attorney General a- around that thing. Now, in terms of Tether right now, one, we've just seen a huge number of redemptions happen very quickly. We had a, a week period that saw something like 10 or $12 billion worth of redemptions that actually happened. The question, of course, isn't the 12th billionth or the 15th billionth or the 20 billionth. It's like whatever billionth is actually not redeemable at the moment in the the case of an actual bank run. It seems to me that Tether is... um, has seen the writing on the wall and is racing to shift things to basically all treasuries as fast as they can, or at least with post haste. You see this in how they communicate in Twitter, and this has clearly changed. Uh, You know, uh, the market has already started to move, though. If you look at the adoption curve of Tether versus USDC, over the last year, it's quite clear the pattern. Now, tether still is, uh, you know, uh, not quite double the size of USDC, but it's the gap is closing. USDC is absolutely racing to be the like above board, you know, more frequent disclosures, et cetera, et cetera. From my standpoint, a- as a market participant. I think that the more that we have, the closer to real-time attestation we have from third parties that are like as legitimate and above board as we can. All for that. I think that any common sense stablecoin legislation is going to require v- versions of that. It might not be real time, but it'll be very regularly. It'll be at least monthly. It'll be maybe earlier. It'll be third parties that are not, you know, sort of connected in any way to to the firms. Uh, I don't know what the answer is if there was a kind of massive Celsius-style bank run on Tether. It's kind of hard to imagine, and I'm not trying to be coy about this. It's just the, the, the level of fear in the market that it would take for that. The number of different players, I think, is so immense. The, the, the problem with Terra... Was that it was structurally designed? Like it, it wasn't just a bank run. It was that they designed a a mouse trap that w- was meant to do exactly what it did, which was inflate to infinity, trying to keep the supply up. So it, it had this totally different type of dynamic. But you know, uh, listen, stable coins are a key part of the infrastructure for the space. So if they can break the pound,
3: they can break tether. <laughs> I'll tell you that much and just watch what's happening jgbs i mean if the japanese government bonds in trouble tether has has a lot bigger risk um i'll just put that out there but i i, I appreciate your commentary it's always good to hear it from somebody who's on the more on the inside yeah yeah sure the the, fo- the follow up to that if we are to see a real liquidation from here and we've always already seen an immense liquidation in crypto but let's imagine a scenario where Bitcoin trades back down to two thousand, okay uh, and relatively you know in the next six months, you know we had Peter Atwater on the show recently and, and his words, you know crypto risk becoming an enormous betrayal right to the people who believed in it. you know it again to be- pull back on that populism thread, it was an embodiment, it is an embodiment of of populism of of a, a freedom. A, a distrust of government and and it was a hope, right, that helped kind of shelter some of that anger, helped give some meaning to those that have, you know, uh, not been able to catch up for many, many years. Do you believe, and this is kind of shifting back to macro, that that some of that anger will somehow, uh, you know, and that disillusionment will ultimately filter into the broader macro market? Um, I think there is a risk of of a Bitcoin or broadly crypto liquidation creating more anger among a younger generation, particularly at a time when that populist impulse is already, you know, gaining steam. Love to hear your thoughts on that.
0: So I think that I generally generally feel that the... It's not that I don't believe that there is this sort of economic cynicism and frustration. Um, I think much more of it lives outside of crypto and even meme stocks than lives inside of it. I think that it is largely... I mean, listen, I, I think that it, to the extent that there are kind of left and right phenomena in the U.S., I think there is an entire left side of this phenomenon in terms of that economic disillusionment that has nothing to do with crypto, that hates crypto because of its environmental footprint and never touched it. And they seem to me to be much angrier than the the people who are kind of in the crypto space, in the meme stock space. Now, there's there maybe a shared kind of context for it, but I, I, I don't know, I... I Overstated isn't the right word to describe how I feel about this sort of this frustration, but I think it's a lot more nuanced than, than sort of just market participants. In fact, I, I'm much more worried about the non-market participants, frankly, than I am about the people who have gotten in. So that's that's one part of, of my answer. Um the second piece is um, I think it's a good question. I, I think that we should like. Let me, let me put it in different terms. In the same way that I believe that it's a legitimate question to ask about uh, systemic risk from crypto flowing into uh, traditional finance, um, which I do, I think that the the way that we ask that is often stupid. I think that it's mostly, to me, that's a question of the opacity of hedge funds and family offices. And, you, you know, like the, the problem isn't that crypto is volatile. The problem is that we don't have a good sense of how crypto market exposure is going to impact other types of exposure, right? Like ARCA, Ghost wasn't a problem because of because of of uh, uh, you know because the particular stocks in question. It was a it was as an opacity problem. It was a problem of prime brokers who didn't know how many different times Huang was leveraged. Right, and so I think that it's a it is an important question to ask, though. Uh, hopefully, the right way. I also agree that it's an important thing when we're looking at kind of sociological phenomena, phenomena that are going to shape generational attitudes and narratives. There's no reason not to like. It's important to ask that question. I think that if you know the if you look at the average market entrance, a lot of that capitulation has already happened, right like the the average sort of you know we're down at twenty thousand again. we hit twenty thousand in december of twenty of twenty twenty and it's certainly possible that some of the g m e folks started to get into crypto and push it up you know in that six month prior period. Uh, but I think that a lot of the sort of like the full push in happened in the sort of December, you know, 2020. After it broke that that kind of twenty thousand dollar psychological barrier, uh, up to up to the highs, and then again when it kind of you know uh, climaxed in, in last fall. So I think that a lot of that has already happened, and so maybe the the question is like. Are we seeing signs of that already with people sort of abandoning crypto, being frustrated with crypto, that translating into other kind of parts of their portfolio? And I don't know. I, I mean, I haven't seen that, but it's, it's, it's a reasonable thing to ask.
2: I mean, we touched on it earlier. Um, and obviously, part of becoming more accepted is is this whole thing about regulation. And I don't know. I don't. I, I mean, I don't know if 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 this is a way for for um, for the old economy to try and control and maybe eliminate the crypto space. But but of course, regulation is coming. And and I was listening um, and enjoyed your conversation recently with uh, Senator Loomis and and Gillibrand, who are introducing this Responsible Financial Innovation Act. A couple of things obviously I'm curious to uh, to hear your opinion about sort of some of the main pros and and cons that you see from from the inside um but one thing that that is again maybe I'm coming back to it um, once again but with regulation come certain things you can't do um and and f- sitting on slightly the outside but being inside the the financial um, uh, world um I do feel And maybe that's also what you were referring to, Nathaniel, in terms of, you know, there have been some of these crypto evangelists that have turned into rock stars that have big platforms. And in my opinion, the way they have talked about it and the promises they have made and the uh, life-changing opportunities and all the words that they have used, to me is very, very similar to pumping something that they benefit from pumping. But, but it's not just in crypto. I mean, what, what Kathy Wood is doing in, in her space is equally crazy, in my opinion. Uh, and I have no idea why regulators uh, don't come down hard on, on her 50% promises of annualized returns going forward and, and what have you. So how do you see all of this play out? Um, because coming back to the point about anger... I mean, not that I spent a lot of time looking into um, the, the crypto people's uh, Twitter feeds, but I did do some a little bit of looking into for our conversation today. And some of these people, and I don't need to name them, I think we we all know who have big platforms and who have been pumping, uh, let's call it that, their Twitter feeds have become quite the sight. And it's not pretty, and people are angry, and so on and so forth. So I'm just, again, interested in how how does this all end up and how does it uh, impact, from your point of view, uh, the crypto world if, if, I mean, if we're going to have regulation, let's have it, but then let's also enforce it. Otherwise, there's no point in having it in the first place. And I come from a world, and, and Jim comes from a world where we can't even talk about our own performance, even though it's audited and it's what have you. We can't mention it, right? So... Imagine what, what our Twitter feeds look like. They're pretty boring compared with um, the crypto space, right? So I'm just
0: curious how you see all of this from, from where you sit. Sure. Let's start with the, the regulation side. Uh, I think that the Responsible Financial Innovation Act is a really great starting point for the discussion. Um, and, and that's what it is, right? They're, they they are The difference is that Senators Lummis and Gillibrand are actually intent on kind of pushing this and having this conversation versus a lot of the different versions of this that we've seen in the past are really just flyers for someone to kind of flag that they care about the industry and whatever. Like I, my impression is that they maybe not, you know, they're going to be real to the realities of pre-midterm election politics and what they can and can't focus on. But I, I don't expect it to go nowhere, even if it ends up being kind of pushed into uh, lots of different kind of smaller bills. Um I think that it's it's a great start to the conversation. I mean, I think, you know, the fact that they're dealing head on with how they see a a potential different path for these things that are security-like and commodities-like, who knows if their sort of idea of an ancillary asset will will pass muster. Certainly, I don't think the SEC is going to let that one go without a fight. But at least it's a conversation that doesn't just say, hey, we should have a conversation about this. It offers something that lawyers who are qualified can debate and discuss and, and, and kind of push forward on. So, uh, you know, I think in general, it's a, it's a really kind of positive uh, starting place for the industry. I You know, when it comes to what regulation won't allow that happens now, a lot of the fights that people who are sort of against regulation as a whole want to have are fights that aren't going to be just about Bitcoin. It's about the entire AML regime. I mean, that's, that's really the implications. Like if you don't want to if you want to be able to use a financial asset that's not cash without KYC compliance, you are going after the Bank Secrecy Act. Now that's a conversation that is totally reasonable to have in terms of how effective the Bank Secrecy Act has been and whether there are other versions and you know what what the implications of you know for financial privacy are and how these kind of new types of approaches hit it. And there's certainly a lot of nuance in terms of how it's applied with these new assets like a lot of the debates are going to be around very specific minutiae of threshold limits and reporting approaches and it's not an accident that last year the big thing that kind of flared up the fight in washington around crypto was a provision around redefining broker and what it meant for non-custodial systems right these are kind of nuanced areas there's going to be a lot of that but i think in general you know regulation is uh we're living in a world where we are if you're like a, a, a rational business person, you're complying with what seems to be the best, your best guess at regulations or the best guess of the regulations of the financial institutions that you're interacting with. It's a lot better to be complying with actual regulations that have been defined than doing your best guess at these things, you know? And and a, and a lot of the, there is still a lot of gray area as much as some folks would like to say that there isn't. So I, I think it's a, a, a net positive. Um, I also think that when it comes to the kind of life finds Way approaches that I was talking with you guys about earlier in terms of, uh, you know, Bitcoin being a way for people to help kind of smuggle their goods and stuff. You know, I, I'm not particularly worried about whether they have the easiest on and off ramps, you know, based on a U.S. regulated exchange like, you know, that that's a whole separate set of con- considerations. So I think that for mainstream usage in the U.S. of digital assets as, you know, kind of Internet native money technology and value store that can be programmed into other things like let's 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 figure this sort of stuff out. When it comes to the shillers uh, and the pumpers, I mean, you're talking to a guy who literally talks about this stuff every day. And I I will take the Pepsi challenge on people finding anything across any one of the, I don't know, 800 shows that I've done that even comes close to Pepsi. Pumping something, right? Uh, I, I mean, you know, I talk admiringly about Bitcoin and its use case in these types of kind of markets frequently, but it has nothing to do with the price, right? right. And, it, and it never does. Um, so I, I I bring that up not to pat myself on the back, but just to give you guys a sense of what I feel about that sort of things. Like I, I you know, I think NFTs are fun. I think they're interesting. I think they're they're they really cool. Salvo in a, a kind of different way to look at uh, uh, creator economies. I I won't even. Tw- tweet about an NFT that I own or buy because it feels too close to pump, just inherently like it's I have 50,000 followers. It's inherently pumping it even if I'm just like, this is cool. You know what I mean? Uh, and it's more than just disclosures. It's just kind of obvious to me. So I don't know if regulation like guts that whole side of the market, like fine, whatever, let them die. I don't care. Like it's a, it's it's ridiculous, you know? So I, I think it, it, bad stuff getting cleaned up is is never really a problem. It's when good stuff gets swept up in the bad stuff to you know and that's that's the line that's always hard to tread
2: yeah no that's 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 very true i know we've already kept you uh like uh for for 75 minutes but I, I have a feeling that we both have a few more questions if you don't mind because this is uh not one of our usual topics but it's so interesting to talk to someone who's who's from the inside and really knows what uh what what's going on so if you don't mind uh if we can keep going for a little while longer uh, one thing i wanted to ask you uh nathaniel is that just just on that point so if I take a little bit maybe the other side of the argument here, I heard uh, Michael Saylor come out arguing that, you know, you have these 19,000 different cryptocurrencies and digital co- uh, tokens in, in um, circulations and they're all kind of unregistered securities um, that can't be linked to a hard asset like Bitcoin. And and he argues that Bitcoin actually is just getting caught up in all this crossfire at the moment of this collapsing uh, crypto market market. Um, because a lot of it is often used for for margin uh, loans and and so on and so forth. I mean, is is that
0: a fair argument? I mean, could be or or not. What are what are your thoughts? Um, I, I mean, I think it's pretty clear based on kind of what I've said that I do think that Bitcoin has a different role and a different level of maturity and product market fit. Let's call it in a lot of situations. Yeah. I, I think that the Bitcoiner dismissal of everything else is on the one hand understandable in terms of uh there really being a functional difference in how things were launched and how they've evolved i think it is reasonable in terms of recognizing that a lot of these things that say they're uh decentralized actually have you know kind of a leadership structure i think it's reasonable in the sense of uh just kind of understanding that there's a different dynamic But I also think that it's a PTSD hangover of a decade of defending Bitcoin and constantly fighting, and in particular, the block size wars and the fight against Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash. And I think that there is a real, uh, I, I don't know. I tend to think that Bitcoin needs Bitcoiners to defend it a lot less than a lot of other Bitcoiners think that it needs to be defended. And I would say only that if you look at, for example, the Responsible Financial Innovation Act and the people who are uh, in Congress and the Senate who are looking at these issues, they get. (laughs) <laughs> that there are differences and nuances to these things. They are no longer in the mode where a thing that was uh you know created yesterday and promises twenty percent returns is being lumped together with you know with with a, with a thing that you know was was built twelve years ago and has no you know functional leadership. So I don't know. I just I worry about <laughs> I, I tend to worry about it a lot less and and I think that like, I don't know. To to the extent that there is a confluence or like these things being caught up, it's much more in media than it is with anyone with power in government. So I'm, like I said, I guess I'm less worried than than some folks are. Jim, do you have a final question or two? Well, I I just wanted to
3: say one thing about this uh, earlier thread that you guys were kind of pulling on, which is the, you know, the decentralized nature of crypto, you know, the libertarian nature, if you will. Creates a situation where you don't have regulation, you don't have, uh, you know, if you have a bit of lawlessness, that is actually sometimes the worst, usually, you know, uh, much like in nature, the worst case for the weak, right? Um, th- that is a situation where the, the powerful or, you know, those that can manipulate and, and can move things around will and will take advantage of it. That's chaos, right? Um, to, you know, there's essentially a choice always between do you trust an entity, whether it's a government or a sovereign or, you know, whatever it is, to, to apply force, you know, to control and put laws around so there's more fairness. But at the end of the day, you're giving up some level of control to this government. Or do you allow, uh, you know, the, the world to just feast upon itself and to make its own rules? And, and uh, in crypto, it's feasting upon itself. Um, and there are—it's not one set of you know—it's not like Bitcoin believers are one. There's there's a majority of people who are uh, speculating and believing in it, but then there's all this this other part which are profiting from it. And really, there is a a dirty underbelly because it is chaotic because it is there is no regulation. Um, and I think that will drive this great disappointment uh, that of the masses that have believed on it because it's feasting on itself and a and a large. Uh, too large. So I think that's important regulation, and this is why you get this debate internally: is regulation good for crypto? Is it bad? People want the freedom from government. This is a bigger, you know, question. In, throughout life, people want government, but they don't want government, right? They want laws and they want regulation, but then government controls them, and then they don't want that, right? It's the human condition, um, and I think you know, crypto is very much embodying that, and we're seeing. It, the kind of the ugly underbelly of, of lawlessness and, and, and freedom, if you will, but a, a freedom where, uh, you know, a libertarian freedom um, where, where things um, are not really as free as people hope. Um, and I think
0: that's a kind of an important takeaway. Uh, not not to end on a disagreement, but that that sounds like an important takeaway for you uh, I, I I think that there is certainly a part of that but you continue to characterize this entire space as libertarian, which is not true. I mean look at look at which government regulators are interested in why you have as many Democrats who are coming from underserved areas who are adopting this technology faster than traditional kind of white majority areas uh, that are exploring it so uh, you also have the entire smart contract space is average left. Also, I've looked at all of the studies of user bases of exchanges; they tend more Democrat than Republican. So, 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 so that's one thing. Is sort of you, you have this meme. Of it as libertarian. You also have a meme of it as unregulated. Explain to me what unregulated means. Do people not pay taxes on their crypto? Do they not have to deal with institutions that are regulated? You know, there are questions, big holes in the regulatory area, but I would challenge you to get out of the soundbite mode a little bit because a lot of the points that you've made today have been pretty. Just, you know, you're, you're bringing a story and a narrative that you have of it, which is fine. I, I, I love being here talking through that with you, but I would push a little bit yeah. on that. To be clear, when I say libertarian, I'm not talking political,
3: and maybe that's a semantic issue here. I mean uh, a lack of law. That would be my a lack of regulation, um, which is what that libertarian kind of ideal is about. I'm not talking Democrat, Republican, all that stuff is the same anyway. Um, this is not a political <laughs> argument. Um, at all, so that, that's not at all what was intended. Um, but I do, you know, I, it's simply the 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 ideal of what crypto and and kind of this this freedom um, and populism that it represents is really kind of of what what I'm talking about. And it isn't regulated. That's the you know there are taxes paid now. There weren't for a long time. Um, you know there is increasingly marginal regulation. But I think it's fair to say. Um, the, the rise of crypto has largely been other than, again, I think we agree on the technology and the blockchain, and blockchain, and its, you know, its efficacy as a technology, okay? And I get your point from before about the funding of that um, in, in almost like a stock type way, that 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 cryptocurrencies, the role that that plays, fine. But this idea that as a monetary phenomenon, right? Um, you know, the monetary phenomenon is about Resting control from government and and a freedom from the control of
2: government, and that's the part that I'm pushing back on um, in terms of libertarianism. Any final thoughts, Nathaniel? I don't. By the way, I don't mind that you two don't agree on on on, on on everything me, here yeah, because no, it, me, it gives us neither. a good me opportunity to invite uh, NLW back uh, and and see how the story continues. But what I do want to ask you, maybe towards the end here, Nathaniel, and that is. There are so many things we could have, you know, talked about. There's so many things going on right now. It's impossible to keep up. You do a fantastic job keeping up with all of that. So my final question to you is, I mean, what should we have asked you in the last 75 minutes? Um, what did we miss in all of these, uh, these things going on that you actually think is so important that we do need to spend a minute on that? before we end. It.
0: No, you 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 did great even even this last question. I mean let, let's leave it as a question instead of a disagreement. It's what is I mean these are these talk about big picture power shifts the role of government which power structures we want to be beholden to which ones that are explicit ie government versus implicit ie business structures right i mean that's a different way to frame the conversation of big tech and i do believe that to the extent that crypto offers something different either on the governmental front or the big tech front it can't shirk from these questions right it has to find sort of its answers that are born out in reality right so it, it, you know it shouldn't it shouldn't be scary to to ask them so I, I listen. I think the conversation has been great, and you know, it'd be weird if we agreed about everything all the time, you know. And I think having more places to uh, to disagree civilly, uh, you know, is is a really important thing. So I appreciate no, the time, guys. Ab-
2: ab- absolutely, and 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 really, Nathaniel, thank you so much for. The time you spent with us today, you really are a deep thinker, uh, and and you represent the space, um, you know, uh, amazingly. So, so we appreciate that, and as I'm sure all our listeners do. And by the way, make sure you check out Nathaniel's podcast, The Breakdown, and follow Nathaniel's uh, Twitter feed, because as you can tell from today's conversation, we are living in a true global macro-driven world, and it is perhaps more important than ever before to stay well-informed. From Gemini. Thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you as we continue our Global Macro Series. And in the meantime, take care of yourself
1: and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released.